The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. And today I have with me in the studio on location at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania, Dr. David Gardner, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Vice President for Advancement here at Westminster. Dr. Garner, thank you for spending some time with me on the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Garner has served as a missionary to Eastern Europe and as a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, where he maintains his credentials as a teaching elder. He's also most recently uh, served in a pastoral position at Proclamation PCA in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, though now his full-time call is out of bounds here at Westminster. His research and writing interests center on or focus on missiology and systematic theology, so it's appropriate that today we're in the, the Sarong Room where Harvey Kahn's library is surrounding us, the great Westminster missiologist of the past. And we're going to be discussing Dr. Garner's latest book, published this year, I believe, Sons in the Sun, The Riches and Reach of Adoption in Christ, which explores the doctrine of adoption. And Dr. Garner, would you first just very briefly define adoption for us? You can even give the catechetical answer to it (laughs) to keep it simple. Well, of course, one of the great things about the Westminster Standards is the way in which in unprecedented fashion it situates adoption as a unique benefit of our union with Christ, distinguishes it clearly from justification and sanctification, and it is, uh, as the the little shorter catechism puts it, it is an act of God's free grace— whereby we are received into the number and have the rights and privileges of the sons of God. It is a theological conception that has not gotten a lot of treatment. In fact, one of the amazing things about our Westminster Standards is for the first time in confessional history, adoption is treated as a distinct locus, a distinct subject of theological discourse. And so it's one of the great appreciations that I actually have for our own standards. And that that lacunae of of adoption in theology in those centuries after the Magisterial Reformation, was that the main impetus behind your project here when you were working on your dissertation and then which evolved into this? Well, on one level, I wish I could describe it as that gloriously uh, conceived in the sense of just recognizing that great lack. When I first began exploring adoption, it was in some ways serendipitous that I stumbled upon it. I was taking a course many, many years ago in my Ph.D. studies with Sinclair Ferguson on the Westminster Standards and literally was thumbing through some articles on the standards uh, in journals and other places, and I, I came across an article by Dr. Kelly on the forgotten doctrine of adoption, and um, that was my first, really my foray into consideration of this, and I wrote a paper for Dr. Ferguson many, many years ago on this subject, 
And he, after we finished interacting about the paper, he said, this is something you ought to pursue further. I like what you're doing. would love for you to explore that further. And I've never looked back. It's just been something that's been part of my own study and research for many, many years and actually has been very useful even in pastoral ministry and reflecting on the bounty of adoptive grace for the children of God. That's wonderful. And and it's you know, in any seminary context or any graduate school context, those those shorter papers can often bear much fruit Indeed. and blossom into large <laughs> projects. And this book right. is is significant. It's a heavy book and it's it's challenging when you read it, but also very rewarding. Mm. And so I've I've appreciated well, I appreciate you saying that. I'm glad. It. Yeah, absolutely. And now, what issues exist in your field, in the field of systematic theology today, with particular concern for adoption? What issues did you seek to address in this book? Well, and maybe in answering that question, I may go back and fill out my answer to your prior one. And what, why I mean that is that there was, in my exploration of this doctrine, uh, a discovery of its great neglect over the history of the church, You know, you can go all the way back to the early church fathers. You don't see a lot of treatment there on adoption. Irenaeus is the one standout exception, and of course, he's the first of the biblical theologians in church history, and he equates adoption really with saving grace effectively um, and does that pretty consistently and against heresies. Um, You know, and you'll see in other church fathers some emphasis like an origin on the fatherhood of God and and related themes, but it's really not until, as best as I can tell, the theology of John Calvin that we get to a really, what I would see in Calvin as a permeating doctrine of adoption that is literally woven through the tapestry of his thought, everything from the personal letters that he's written to his commentaries and and to the institutes themselves. Adoption for Calvin is woven into the fabric of his thought. Um, it's even on his in his dying words. Uh, adoption is foremost in his mind. Um, quite striking that it was theologically significant, but existentially so for Calvin as well. So, to I guess to answer your question um, about where adoption fits in systematic theology and how it relates. You know, it's really a question of how we think about the application of salvation, the ordo salutis, um, and really dives into debates upon the ordo about what's first in the ordo, how do the benefits in the ordo relate to one another, and then more pressingly in my mind is how does adoption relate to union with Christ? And all of those are very, very important questions, and they're not merely pedantic ones. They are questions that actually lead to a greater understanding, and once we form them, I think, in a way that honors Scripture, it leads to a greater appreciation for the riches and scope of gospel grace in the Lord Jesus. And so it's important for being accurate as we deal with the text, and therefore it's important then in the way in which we frame it in our systematic theology that leads, of course, to the way in which we preach it, the way in which we think about it, the way in which the community of faith understands union with Christ and our adoption in him. That's all very, very practical stuff. And thinking back to your comment about Calvin and how adoption is a permeating concern of his in his theology, but also just as he contemplated his own existence as a son of God, mm-hmm. I, I I think I remember in a 
and an exhortation I delivered in my home church where I grew up, one of the very first times I opened up the Word in front of a congregation, I quoted Calvin, and I said Calvin had two overriding concerns in his writing, and uh, I'm not saying predestination and election. I'm saying the fatherhood of God and uh, popish uh, mistakes or something <laughs> like that. I made some smart joke or comment. Uh-huh. Um, but it, even even a casual reading of Calvin yes. shows that mm-hmm. to be the case. And, uh, I mean, a casual reading of Paul right. should show that to be the case. So it's interesting that it hasn't gotten more attention, and, and I'm thankful for Well, and for I think work. one of the reasons, and I address this briefly in my book, one of the reasons that adoption has not been given a great deal of attention is the frequency with which the term appears. It's only five times in the whole New Testament that the word itself appears. That could be misleading because I would argue that its lack of frequency does not align with with its theological significance. And that is uh, something I attempt to argue, actually, in my book. Yeah, and I'm going to bring that up in a little bit when I ask about general hermeneutical concerns as we address those kinds of lexical frequencies and uses of terms and whatever. Now, you already read for us or, or recited for us um, in good catechetical fashion Westminster Shorter Catechism Answer 34 describing adoption, the one we hear on the floor of presbytery sure. when candidates are asked. But chapter 12 of the confession itself opens with this statement and, and goes beyond what the catechism says. And the confession reads, All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. Why is that language, in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, significant for the doctrine of adoption? Well, hopefully we'll unpack this a bit more as we go along, because that question, I suppose you could argue that that question is really the the reason for my book. Uh, Because in what way is adoption related to Christ's own experience, his own identity. Um, When the language of our confession situates adoption in terms of it being in and for the Son of God, the only Son, Jesus Christ, what exactly does that mean? Um, And how is Christ's own experience and identity as a son related to our redemptive sonship? Uh, that's really what my book is attempting to get at. And uh, the, 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 the language of the confession here is brief, it's concise, and requires even its own sort of exegetical labors and looking at the confession as a whole to try to get a sense of what exactly did the divines have in mind when they penned it that way. But at the very least, we would have to say that in their minds there is no adoption apart from Jesus Christ, the beloved Son. There is no such thing. And you put it in your in your introduction, I think, or it was either your introduction. Yeah, I think it was your introduction. You wrote, "Adoption then does not serve to differentiate believers from Christ; rather, it serves to expose the crowded graces of our salvation, secured in our union with the resurrected, exalted, perfected, and adopted Son of God. The believer's redemptive adoption comes by the adoption of the Redeemer. His adoption is our adoption. His holy sonship, our holy sonship, and that's what you're developing throughout the book. It is, and so one of the things that Zach we must always preserve is the uniqueness of 
of Christ, that there, he is the one mediator. There are not multiple mediators. He is the one redeemer. There are not multiple redeemers. He is uniquely the son of God in a way that no one ever else could be. He's the eternal son. He is uniquely the incarnate son. Uh, and so whatever we might say about adoption, we need to qualify it uh, in terms of the distinction between the believers and the one in whom we believe. And that relates, of course, to the identity of Christ. But what I am arguing is I do think it's important for us to realize that our adoption is actually tied to something that takes place in the life experience of Jesus Christ himself. That as Richard Gaff and Gerhardus Voss, uh, many others have recognized that there is a filial dimension to Christ's resurrection, that something happens in his sonship status that is unprecedented, redemptive historically, and that bears directly upon our understanding of salvation. Even the language of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 makes abundantly clear that the Son who comes is the one through whom all things are made and are held together. He is unequivocally clear that the Son is eternal God. But there is a temporal character to the language of Hebrews 1, 5 and following in which in reflecting upon Psalm 2, Hebrews 1 will say there's a moment in time in which God's Son becomes God's Son. So there's something that happens in Christ's own experience by which he enters a new, unprecedented phase of sonship, a glorified sonship that is critical for our doctrine of salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, there is. I want to stay in the preface for one more question because it, it's rich, and I think it's important as a gateway to the rest of the book, and it's not the only part of the book that I read. Because <laughs> okay. Some of my listeners are going to think, Zach only read the preface, and he's trying to sound smart. That's not the case. I did read more than that. I didn't read the whole thing yet, but I did read more than that. What do you mean when you write in the preface, quote, according to divine word and deed, adoption cloaks the gospel in filial array and weds the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit to generate the doctrine of salvation. Yeah, that's a, it's a packed sentence. It is. It is. What I'm attempting to articulate there is that as we think about the scope of adoption, that it is comprehensive in scope. It's not merely to be viewed as one aspect of redemptive grace, but something that permeates the whole. To put it a little bit more or less abstractly, that everything that we gain by faith comes to us in the resurrected, and I argue adopted, Son of God. And so it is in that place of redemptive historical transformation in the life experience of Christ, it is that Christ to whom we are united. And what then systematic, systematically that that leads me to is bringing together the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Spirit, and the doctrine of salvation in a way that needs to be understood together. And, and, and what I mean by that is the Spirit applies to us the person and work of Christ Jesus. And so the Spirit does not give us something that Christ has not himself attained and that we do not get from Christ something that he has not attained. And so in Paul's mind, the ministry of the Spirit, in fact, Christ is described in 1 Corinthians 15 as life-giving Spirit. 
that as the resurrected, adopted, exalted son, it is he in whom the power of salvation surges to us and that we are granted everything that he has accomplished at that moment of salvation. I think Dr. Piper was preaching on uh, Sola Gratia in Tennessee, and he said something that is stuck with me. I wrote it down, and it's still in my head, and it says, uh, the spirit, Christ's spiritual blood is flowing through your spiritual veins yes. in union with Christ. And talking about that, uh, I think it, maybe it was a sermon on Sola Fide, because he's talking about through faith and our union with Christ through faith. Um, and that, that reminded me, what you just said reminded me of that. Well, in, in keeping with that, Zach, I like to speak about it in terms of spiritual genetics, mm. that, that there is a, there's a spiritual DNA that we gain from our union with the resurrected Son of God. How glorious is that? We yeah. begin to uh, then show forth evidences of our union with him and we're conformed to his image as the spiritual dna works itself out into full flower and blossom right um that's very good wow this is a good interview i hope hope a lot of people are listening to this one Um, (laughs) now you describe your presentation or development of the doctrine in chapter one adoption scope and point of entry and in any project this large you're going to be discussing things that have significance beyond even the subject at hand and one of those is 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 hermeneutics and and how we read scripture and this is really important for seminary students listening and pastors who are listening uh especially when we're talking about a word like adoption which only occurs five times or has five significant passages in the new testament um, you discuss, to great effect, I think, hermeneutical blunders that some theologians and exegetes make over the years. You cite Carson's uh, seminal book on that, Exegetical, exegetical Fallacies. fallacies yes. And one issue that stuck out to me that both Carson develops and then you bring up again in relation to adoption is the problem of assigning value or significance to a theological term or word based on the frequency of its use in the Word, in, in the Bible. What problems do we run into, generally speaking, in adoption and beyond, when, when we do that, when we assign value based on frequency. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the ways that you could do this would just be to highlight the absurdity of doing a, a theological examination of, of the, the definite article, you know, on, in, its, in, its own, in its own right. So without any connection to the context in the way which it's, it's absurd to even think about, right? And, and so... You know, the, the word regeneration, for example, that word itself only appears two times in the entire New Testament. And yet it's such an important concept for us, redemptive historically and salvifically. Um, and so similarly, it's not how often the term adoption is used, but how it's used. And in its five occurrences, if you just did a cursory look at the five places in which adoption shows up, you suddenly realize that it has a scope, a significance for the Apostle Paul that is grand. It's sweeping in its significance. And that takes us all the way from prior to human history itself, from before the creation of the world in Ephesians 1, to the consummation of, of divine redemptive purpose on the stage of history in Romans chapter 8 with the resurrection of the sons of God. For Paul, adoption embraces or entails all of that. And so it's not something that should be reduced to sort of isolated treatment. It needs to be understood in its rich 
grandiose scope that Paul views it to bear. And this shouldn't just be a uniquely Reformed observation. I mean, Ephesians 1 and, and Romans 8 and, and on the other passages that in which adoption occurs or where we're seeing adoptive filial language, they're important for all evangelical believers. Yes. And and they become kind of lodestone passages for, for all kinds of traditions, right. um, even though you know, sometimes the understanding might not be 100% there, but th- those are the passages you're seeing highlighted in a number of uh, theological traditions. Now, the organization of this work is impressive, um, the, the organization of your book. You've divided the book not only into 10 chapters, but those 10 chapters into three overarching parts. In fact, the way I saw it is, is if each paragraph in your book is a church and the whole book is the General Assembly, then you've given, uh, you've given the General Assembly not just presbyteries but synods, and that's really helpful. Good for you. you know. <laughs> I had not thought about it in those terms, Zach, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're not a complete uh, nerd like me. Now, in all seriousness, such orderly division makes the book much easier to digest, uh, much easier to benefit from, whether you're doing a thorough reading or not, especially if you're doing a, um, an inspection reading in Mortimer Adler's terms. Mm-hmm. Now, would you walk us through at least the three parts of the book, describing to our listeners and to me both the thinking behind the divisions as well as the main ideas of the various chapters? Well, so the very first part is what I, what I describe as the hermeneutics, history, and etymology of the term huiathesia, the term adoption. And it's really basically to provide a historical context, an etymological context, and even the way in which in recent years and more sociologically oriented studies and etymologically oriented studies, the way in which the term adoption has been used. And some of that's actually quite useful, um, but it needs to be appropriated properly. And so what I'm seeking to do is to lay out really some methodological concerns as well as historical ones so that when we move into the texts in chapter two that we have a sort of an understanding of what has gone on already in the study of this term but also methodologically so that the reader will know how I'm going about what I'm doing and why. So that's really part one. And then you you said, especially in chapter two, you see adoption in historical theology. You make the observation that it, it really hasn't, it's been given short shrift as a doctrine, hasn't been given as much development as you like to see. But in that chapter, you, you really only have space enough to give it 15 pages. So it's a fairly short chapter. What work in that field in historical theology do you hope to see in the future, perhaps even as a follow up to this book? So just so I'm clear on your question, are you asking more from a historical perspective or from a systematic theological one? From a, so, you know, other men and women, uh, theologians and exegetes that want to write ac- at an academic level mm-hmm. or even the kind of halfway between popular and academic level like you've done in this book and want to write on the doctrine of adoption. I know Dr. Beakey, Joel Beakey, has a, a Great book on Great little this, book on the on, Puritans on adoption. Yeah, yes. but obviously mm-hmm. there's more work that could be done in the field of historical yes. theology. What kinds of projects or theses? are you hoping to see or maybe do you even know about? Well, I would love to see a bit more work done in the Puritans. Joel's book is great, It's a, it, but it's a tiny book and it, it represents a great deal of labor behind it, um, which is evidence, uh, evident on every page. But I would love to explore a bit more of how the Westminster Divines and the Puritans treated this doctrine. Thomas Boston, for example, very, very important to him. You know, what is, and it ties directly to an earlier question, 
the one season in the life of the church where we've seen adoption given some very rich treatment was in the Puritans and the Puritan uh their whole understanding of the pastoral significance of the benefits of adoption are just really, really good. So I'd love to see some more work done in that area. Some of it's been done more privately with with projects that uh, doctoral students have done but have not really seen publication. It would just be great to, to see some of that more. I would love someone to take further the study of the place of adoption in Calvin, and uh, not only in the way in which he uses the term, but develop, uh, really attempt to develop the way in which the permeating function of adoption is in place in all of Calvin's writings. I think that's arguably true. Um, It's been recognized, but I'd love to see that more thoroughly developed. I think it'd be really useful. Very good. And I know our own Dr. Nick Wilborn, who did his Ph.D. here at Westminster um, on the doctrine of adoption in the writings of John Lafayette Giraudot. Yes. Um, I know he's also wanting to develop that further, has been encouraged to develop it further by many of his friends for publication. I would love to see that. Because Giraudot arguably is the American theologian, maybe before before you, who has developed adoption. That's very uh, true. And I referenced Giraudot a number of times in my work. Great. Now, in part two, those three chapters, um, would you tell us a bit about that? Well, so chapters, I guess there are four, five, and six in this part two are actually the more, what I would describe as a theological exposition of the Huiathesian passages, the texts where the term Huiathesia shows up. And I arrange them uh, on really the basis of where adoption, how it's used in each of those texts. So in Ephesians 1, it's it's situated in a pre-temporal context, the purposes of God from before the foundation of the world. And then I move to Galatians and its treatment of adoption in redemptive history, where in Galatians 4, uh, it is... Paul reads or writes to us that God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so it ties it to the stage of redemptive history in which adoption is realized in the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. Then in Romans 8 um, and 9, which is chapter 6, Adoption shows up in Romans 8 twice and in Romans 9 once. And there in Romans 8, of course, Paul's shift is to the, really he's looking at the whole uh, stage of covenant history from creation to consummation. And in that, he views the doctrine of adoption in terms of the application of the ministry of Jesus to us who are redeemed so that we become the sons of God. And we receive the spirit of adoption, but our adoption is fully realized at the resurrection. And so he brings together the already and the not yet of our adoption in Romans 8, 15, and 23. Romans 9 then explores the way in which adoption functions in Old Old Covenant Israel's own experience and reflects back, I believe, on Exodus chapter 4 that where God calls Israel out to worship him and he calls Israel his son. And Paul 
capitalizes upon that actually in Romans 9, 1 to 5. You're paying homage, at least in the titles, to your predecessor, one of your predecessors here yeah. at Westminster. The, the titles of these chapters are Adoption Purposed, Adoption Accomplished, Adoption Applied. Now, is that just similar to Doc, uh, Professor Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied, or, or did you, in some sense, were you dependent upon his work, and were you building on well, it? Well, Murray, of course, he's got a chapter in that great book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, on adoption, and it was definitely influential in my thinking, has served, continues to serve as a great influence. That book is classic, it's wonderful, it's rich. Um, the language of accomplished and applied, of course, is not unique to Murray, um, but that book certainly could not have been outside my purview when I created these, these chapter titles. But it does represent a, a clear connection between what God purposes, he accomplishes, and he applies. Back to our prior conversation, the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the Spirit as it relates to the doctrine of salvation. All those things come together. That's excellent. And then in part three, you move on, and I picked up on uh, your appreciation, which is stated in the acknowledgments, but your appreciation for the work of uh, Dr. Richard Gaffin, whom you've already mentioned, and Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, whom you mentioned. I see it here in part three on full display. How has their work informed your own as you've developed the doctrine of adoption along lines of biblical and systematic theology here in part three? Well, one of the things, and this actually goes back to Murray himself, is that we at Westminster seek to approach systematic theology from a radically non-speculative perspective. And what we mean by that is that our systematic theology needs to be clearly tied to exegesis and to biblical theology. And of course, Dr. Gaffin carrying on that, I would argue, Calvin, Vossian, Ritterbossian tradition um, in a formative way here at Westminster influences, of course, Sinclair Ferguson himself, and you see in Ferguson and in Gaffin an attempt really to do justice to the text as it relates to systematic theology. And that's really what I'm trying to do in part three, is to show the way in which the exegesis ties through biblical theology to systematic theological conclusions. And do you have any unique contributions then that you've brought to the fore here that you'd like to highlight for our listeners who are thinking about reading the book? Well, so, yeah, many, I think. Um, certainly would encourage uh, anyone who's really interested in, the, in understanding the doctrine of salvation to work through this. Um, but I, I guess the first thing I would want to say is I, in Chapter 7 in this book, pick up on what Dr. Gaffin has written about in a couple of places, and others as well, but um, the way in which he has treated Romans 1, 3, and 4, and recognized that when Christ was raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, and raised from the dead in power, that that marks his adoption. And what I attempt to do in chapter 7 is show that Jesus is first eternal Son of God, so I'm aligning myself very clearly in historic orthodoxy as it relates to the identity of Jesus as the second member of the Trinity. Um, so he is eternal Son, made incarnate Son, and in his incarnation, and this is where I've developed this a bit more, is to understand the necessary development 
as son that qualifies him to be begotten, as it were, at his resurrection, where he is declared the son of God in power and that he attains a status of glorified sonship in his resurrection that was redemptive historically unprecedented. So Jesus becomes son in a new way in, in, on the stage of redemptive history. And what I'm seeking to argue is that that is essential for our doctrine of adoption. And one of the helpful pieces on this is actually first century Roman imperial adoption and its practice. Because let me just mention this briefly. Um, the Roman emperor would look at his biological offspring and he would be disappointed one son after another about them being legitimate heirs to his throne. What would he do? Well, he would seek out an adult, proven adult son who had demonstrated integrity, who had demonstrated reliability, who had demonstrated leadership, who was excellent in every way, and would then adopt that adult son, and that son would then be the one who would take over his throne. And what is interesting about adoption in a biblical sense, it's very different than our contemporary practice. Our contemporary practice of adoption is looking in mercy upon an orphaned child and receiving that child into a home to try to provide stability. Well, that's a wonderfully gracious act, and it's just, I encourage people to do it. But that's not what's in Paul's eye as he borrows this term from a very familiar concept in first century Greco-Roman world, in which adoption was actually selecting a son who had already proven himself to be excellent. Well, why that's significant is that sounds on the surface very odd to our ear. God doesn't choose us because we're excellent, no. He chooses us in his excellent son, and it is in Christ's excellence that we are actually granted the full bounty of inheritance and benefits because he has shown himself excellent, as the Gospel of Mark puts it, that he was excellent in everything that he did, and that there is a, a real transformation and maturing that took place in Christ's own life, that he learned obedience through the things which he suffered, so that he became qualified to be that excellent son. He was vindicated at his resurrection and declared that son of God in power. And it is that sort of experience in Christ by which we need to understand our own adoption. And then in first century Roman imperial adoption, as you've described it, it sounds rather legal and, or, and forensic in nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I'm, I need an heir. I'm emperor. All my sons are terrible. Yeah. I just need legally to give this status to another man right. who is younger than me and is going to do well as sure. emperor. At least I hope so. And so I, I then adopt him. And that's, I mean, I might not have any real fatherly affection for him, but mm-hmm. you say there's a filial contour to uh, soteriology here in Christ's yeah. adoption, in which we're then adopted. Yeah. So it, it goes beyond Roman imperial adoption, though, how Paul develops Absolutely. it, Absolutely. Right? So what I would simply say, adoption is not restricted by the Roman imperial analogy, but that it is useful because there's some wonderful connection points between what Paul understands in terms of redemptive history, Old Testament saints as being saints under age, being juveniles, and having attained now the status of 
of, of glorified existence through the Son of God himself that is realized, of course, for us personally only at our final resurrection. But there is more than just a legal component to this, that there is a covenantal one at the core. There is, because the spirit of adoption is poured out into our hearts, that there is a transformation that takes place in terms of our even the experience of our filial identity by which we are warmed to the Father, long to do the will of the Father, even as our elder brother has done. And I would commend to our listeners chapter 7. That's where Dr. Garner really goes into um, how what he's proposing is not akin to the adoptionistic heresy Absolutely. that racked the early church. Yeah. And and he's very careful to make a distinction between his project and the project of, of what is it, the Ionites and yes. or whoever else had adopted yeah. had the adoptionistic heresy that Christ became the Son of God. Yeah, their at argument his baptism is that he was not the Son prior to, begin, to baptism yeah. or resurrection, which is heretical. Yeah, and that's not what Dr. Gardner is arguing. Now, I I will I do want to go into this last question. It's a bit involved because it has to do with a book review that our own systematician Ryan McGraw right. uh, produced earlier this year on your book. He wrote it for Ordained Servant Online. I think it's an OPC publication. And uh, those of you familiar with Ryan's work know that he's constantly reading books and and reviewing them. And he gave a very warm review to Sons in the Sun, and he commends the book to those who are reading his review and saying, "Read this book. May it." May it enrich your appreciation for your salvation and adoption as sons, and, and do, what Dr. Garner has done is very important. But he brings in a critique, um, at least, yeah, two critiques, and the one I, I want to focus on now, and that's in the opening chapter of Part 3, Chapter 7, that we've been discussing, Jesus Christ, the Son Adopted. Uh, Dr. Garner, you argue that, quote, it is not enough that God the Son joined humanity. He had to grow, learn, and attain fullest maturity as the Son of the Covenant, end quote. You've been discussing that already. And if I'm correctly understanding your argument, you locate this attainment in his resurrection, which has a, quote, filial contour, end quote, as you put it, in that it was in Christ's resurrection that the eternal Son of God was made the adopted Son of God, that the elect people of God may become the adopted sons of God in union with Christ. Did I represent that fairly? Yes, I would want to qualify it in yeah. a couple of ways. One is I'm not just arguing that the eternal Son became the adopted Son, but the eternal Son first became the incarnate Son, mm -hmm. and as incarnate Son, he became the adopted Son. So I would want yeah. to clarify that. Make sure first. we have that step in. Yeah, there. it's yeah. very, very important. <laughs> but what I am arguing and where I think you're going with this, I would want to insist that the hypostatic union is not on its own terms just ontologically sufficient for salvation, that it was necessary for Christ to grow, to learn, to develop, as Luke 2 puts it. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Hebrews will put it that he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And those things must not be treated in a perfunctory fashion as though they were not necessary for our salvation. And what I'm seeking to argue is that Christ's own developmental experiences, to put it in theological language, his active obedience, 
were necessary for his soteric efficacy. Yeah, you say on page 203 in that same chapter, without the improvement of the son unto eschatological adoptive sonship, his life lacks soteric efficacy. In other words, if Christ isn't adopted as son, then his work cannot save us. Yeah, I would frame it slightly differently and simply say that for us to receive adoption as sons, Christ had to grow, develop, and be recognized as the beloved, excellent son in whom the Father is well pleased covenantally. And so I would assert that what takes place at his baptism, what takes place at the Mount of Transfiguration, is not a declaration of ontological approval of the Father of the eternal or merely the statically concerned incarnate Son, but these are affirmations of the excellence of that Son in doing the will of his Father, which that Son described as his very food. It was his very nourishment. It was his delight to do the will of his Father. And that is marked then at his adoption as being all-sufficient, adequate, excellent, and it is that Son to whom we are tethered by union with Christ. So those declarations are anticipating the adoption which occurs, that attainment that occurs at his resurrection. Correct. Okay. That that answers one question I had. Now, might someone be able to argue, though, that our status as adopted sons— is linked to Christ's status as natural son in much the same way that our new birth in regeneration is an inexact parallel to and grounded in Christ's incarnation. Yeah, so uh, this is this gets really tricky theologically, right? Because I don't want to I want to distinguish Christ's incarnation from his adoption, but I don't want to separate them. And and so in in similar fashion, I do want to tie our salvation to Christ's incarnation, but it's an incarnation that entails development of that Son as the God-man. Mystery, to be sure, but I think essential to our understanding both of Christology and of soteriology. Now, to be sure, and even Dr. McGraw points out, you know, well, Jesus was not corrupted, so he didn't need regeneration. Um, which in part I think is what Owen is getting at um, in his arguments. I want to obviously affirm that Christ was without sin. Scripture is abundantly clear uh, about that. But I would want to say that our new birth is tied to his resurrection efficacy, that Christ was really dead and he was made really alive, and that our regeneration is a, is a product of that real change that took place in Christ himself as the incarnate Son. So I would want to situate again my understanding of the transformed heart and the resurrected life in direct connection with the experience of Jesus moving from his incarnate state as in humiliation to his exalted state in his glorification. Um, To our listeners, J.I. Packer wrote an endorsement, and it's quoted on the front of the cover of the book. It says, this book is a gem, a precious, mind-clearing, heartwarming achievement. And I anticipate that in in many ways, and and I think it's Dr. Garner's hope, it's certainly my hope, that this will also be a groundbreaking book for further exploration in the doctrine of adoption, in in perspective of historical theology, systematic theology, biblical theology, and, and beyond. It certainly has many pastoral uses 
and um, and those are clear as you read the book and, and as you go through it. I commend it to you, Dr. Garner. Thank you for spending so much time with me, and especially you know this is nice. We're able to do it in person because I'm here in Philadelphia uh, for a short trip over Thanksgiving break. And as always, I've enjoyed my time with you. Our listeners may not know this. Thank you so much. Yes. I was a candidate under care in the same presbytery in which Dr. Garner has his uh, credentials. And do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners before I let you go? Thank you for asking. I just first want to thank you for the time. It's been a delight. And I just want to encourage the listeners to interact with this book and consider afresh the glory and splendor of the gospel. It is magnificent. And the doctrine of adoption profiles that in richer and fuller ways than most of us realize. And I pray that this book will be a small step forward in helping people to understand the gospel in richer and fuller ways. Amen. Praise the Lord. You've been listening to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Until next time, God bless you. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.